I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And I'm Mischievous Mark Giannacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, including the negative issues, including so many random comics with the word Amazing Spider-Man on it. But like the fact of the matter is, if it's not in the main continuity, one to nine, whatever it's up to right now, Dan, it just doesn't count, including the annuals. They don't count. So let's move on from it. All right. Why are we still doing this? In the spirit of moving on, Mark, uh, I will make my official announcement on this episode of the show that I have purchased the minus one issue of Amazing Spider-Man and have it in my collection now. So you did it. You got me to buy it, Mark. And now my collection is complete. So there you go. I also purchased the minus one of Spectacular and regular adjective list just because I was like, God damn it. I will not forget about this. Those are going to have a place in my collection before they slip my memory of their existence uh, as it has done. Everybody who who's read those books. I just wanted to put it in the record that you and I have the same number of amazing Spider-Man books now. I mean, probably until I move the goalposts again, but keep talking. Don't worry, I'm actively looking for ways to move the goalpost. But thank you, everybody, for joining us for our fifth episode of Season 6 of The Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, arbitrary, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. I mean, there might even be like some negative one podcast apps out there and you could use those too. Don't use those. I don't (laughs) even know what we just, we just play backwards. It's like the RFK Jr. uh, podcast app. I don't know. Anyway. I mean, if you play this episode backwards, we're secretly sending messages to Mephisto. <laughs> this podcast exists because of the support of our Patreon members. If you want to receive early episodes, exclusive artwork, and keep this podcast going, long may it rain, go to AmazingSpiderTalk.com and consider joining our Patreon. Every episode of this season features artwork by comic artist Nick Cagnetti and is available to our Patreon members, unlettered and in stunning high resolution. Of course, you can find Nick Cagnetti on the graphic novel Pink Lemonade. Go get it now at your local comic book shop. Yeah. In this season of The Amazing Spider Talk, we're going back to the mid-80s when the Amazing Spider-Man title was handed over to one of the most legendary creative pairings in comics, who were just starting their creative partnership, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. 
It was a time of immense change in the comics industry, but together, Tom and Ron returned Spider-Man to its Ditko-inspired roots to create one of the most beloved runs on the title. On today's show, we're going to be talking about how the ripple effects of the larger comics industry shift towards a, a greater darkness or grim darkness, if you will, and maturity would find its way into the pages of Spider-Man comics. While Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends held to a classical tradition of hoo-ha, Silver Age, comic book storytelling in the pages of spectacular Spider-Man, a new writer on the comic scene, Peter David, would take after the likes of Frank Miller to bring a darker tone to Peter Parker's adventures. Yeah, so we're going to be specifically talking about the classic Spider-Man story, The Death of Gene DeWolf, which can be found in issues 107 to 110 of Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, or Just the Spectacular Spider-Man. Some libraries counted under P, some of them counted under S. I mean... You know, good luck navigating all of this, which is to say you can often find these issues in like collected in trades or in reprints or the original issues don't typically cost that much to buy. You know, like I said, collected editions, but it's also all available on the Marvel Digital Marketplace and Marvel Unlimited. It's weird because it's this kind of like weird island uh, in like the comic run on Marvel Unlimited where spectacular to either side of this story has not yet been uploaded, but they were sure to get the death of Gene DeWolf up. I can't even begin to speak to like what's on Marvel unlimited and why and, and, and their priorities there still missing the JMD run on uh, spectacular Spider-Man, which is baffling to me, but at least we have the death of Gene DeWolf. So you can go check out issues 107 to 110 of the spectacular Spider-Man Volume one, you know, getting into this, we're talking about this era of comics. And when we talk about like Ron friends and Tom DeFalco, you know, they were doing their own thing, as we said in our kind of opening episode of this season, this kind of silver age, as they would call it, hoo ha style of comics that was becoming a rarity in the comic scene by the mid eighties. Can you tell us a little more historically about like why this was true. What was happening in the comic scene? This is 1985. Like, what's going on that would make Amazing Spider-Man so different? I mean, it's funny. When we did our intro for the Roger Stern season, we kept kind of prefacing it by saying, you know, comics were getting darker. You know, in terms of the early 80s was very much very true. You had Frank Miller and Klaus Johnson uh, doing their their famed Daredevil run. And that was kind of like the, the you know, the the... Point, you know, the patient zero, if you will, of of darker superhero comics. Uh, but by the mid 80s, specifically by 85, it was kind of like the floodgates had opened. And, you know, just just to give you a sense of context here, you know, some of the big books that uh, had come out either immediately before or immediately after the death of Gene DeWolf and Peter David's run on Spectacular included uh, from D.C. Crisis on Infinite Earths which was their their big miniseries, kind of more or less like the first big true crossover. Um, I know Secret Wars kind of takes its its uh, claims for that as well, but Crisis on Infinite Earths was this very sophisticated attempt to streamline the, the, the timelines of the DC universe, which were kind of all over the place by that point. You had Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing, which was considered a very groundbreaking, groundbreaking character-driven, kind of psychedelic type run. You also had Alan Moore 
run on Miracle Man, which, um, you know, be, I mean, Miracle Man is, is a whole other uh, thing. I mean, I, I, I don't have a degree in Miracle Man, so I'm not even going to attempt to explain it. But, you know, it's it, it's all about copyright infringements and, and, and dark characters and and heads exploding. It's 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 everything you'd want in an Alan Moore comic. Around this time, we also had the debut of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which, I mean, not for nothing, was kind of a spoof on the Frank Miller Daredevil run for the most part. I mean, all the way from the origin issue to, you know, through the first 20 or 30 issues of this of this book. Yeah, Splinter is stick. I mean, there's really no, no way around it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I know probably some of the hardcore fans understand this already, but like, you know, in terms of like the late 80s, early 90s cartoon and the movies and all that kind of stuff, uh, these Ninja Turtles had nothing to do. They, they were nowhere similar to what, you know, kind of the very big pop culture phenomenon of Ninja Turtles ended up being. Immediately after the run of Gene DeWolf, Frank Miller returned to Daredevil and uh, did uh, Born Again, which is, you know, probably considered by some to be the greatest Daredevil story of all time. It's going to be uh, a Marvel show on Disney Plus. It's going to, you know, bring the, you know, the, the official return of Daredevil to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then like within like six months or so of the end of the publication of, of Gene DeWolf's storyline, we had Watchmen. The great Alan Moore storyline of that is, you know, basically like a, a a total breakdown of like what the silver age of superhero comics was supposed to be. Uh, and of course, the Dark Knight Returns, which was, you know, his his middle age uh, dark Batman going against the Reagan uh, inspired Superman. I mean, this is all very dark, politically motivated, you know, like this is this is what it was a massive shift in tone and style, artistic style, visual style, storytelling style, the kind of words and verbiage used in comics. Like this all shifted around the time that um, this Spider-Man comic book storyline was published. But also add in the way that people talked about comics change. You know, Correct. Like I, I, I'm, I'm not a historian in that regard, but like I would imagine this is the era of the word graphic novel. Yes, one hundred percent. You know, I mean, and, I mean specifically Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns. Those are considered like the advent of the graphic novel, where you know you could go into a bookstore or a library and you were checking out comic books, but it was almost like literature in that regard. Right, and so like again in that venue, like a more Silver Age inspired Amazing Spider Man really stands out. You know, it is the exact thing that Alan Moore's books are in many ways critiquing or commenting on. You know, that's not to say that there wasn't some sophisticated, some sophistication and modern elements brought into the DeFalco Friends run, but it really stands apart from all of these things. Mark, you know, like we, we don't get a chance to often talk about books outside of the purview of Spider-Man, are these books some of your favorites? Are, are, do you prefer the kind of hoo-ha uh, stuff? Like, uh, where do you stand on this kind of era of comics? I like to think of myself as a, a pretty open-minded reader in terms of... I, I, I like it all, Dan. It's kind of the, uh, the bottom line. But, but, the, but the fact of the matter is, and I'm not, I'm not saying this colors my opinion of it, but, you know, all of these comics that I just rattled off 
Um, you know, if you go to like, you know, best of lists on like CBR or like other big comic book sites, I mean, these are all like consistently in like the top 10 comic book stories or runs of all time, you know, especially like, you know, Alan Moore Swamp Thing and Crisis and uh, Daredevil Born Again, Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen. I mean, for me, like I... I certainly appreciate the, the, the sophistication of these stories. I, I, I have read pretty much everything here. The, the, the only one that like, I, I have to be honest, doesn't that, that does kind of leave me cold is miracle man. I mean, like I, I love me some Alan Moore, uh, but, but like that storyline just kind of, I don't know. It's just a little too deconstructed superhero storytelling for me. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it goes even further than Watchmen does in that regard. I will also admit, like, as time goes on and I read more and more comics, both of this era, earlier and later, it these books, like, as much as I like them, they also kind of become easier to both poke holes in and kind of make fun of in terms of the darkness of it. But, like, at the end of the day, like, if you're asking me, what are some, you know, what are some of your non-favorite Spider-Man stories? I mean, I'm going to talk about certainly Born Again. I'm going to talk about Watchmen. I probably like Batman Year One more than Dark Knight Returns, but Dark Knight Returns is a great read in that regard. So yeah, I like them. I like them a lot. Um, I like them in this context. W- w- what about you? I agree with just about everything you said. I mean, like I get, I also like Batman Year One more than uh, Dark Knight Returns, but it's been a been a long time since I've read that that book, and I feel like its criticisms of Reagan were probably sharper in in the mid '80s, but. Although it's always, I guess, uh, open field day for criticizing the Reagan era. But um, <laughs> uh, I wasn't I was barely born to experience it, so uh, far be it for me. But uh, I mean, like any day of the week, you wouldn't have to twist my arm to get me to say that I think like Daredevil Born Again is one of the best books Marvel's ever published, if not the best book Marvel's ever published, certainly better than Maximum Carnage. Um, and, uh, you know, Watchmen is like one of my favorite pieces of literature ever. Like I have a, uh, Dave Gibbon signed copy of that book with, he drew Rorschach in and like, that's a real treasure of mine. I can't tell you how many people I bought that book for. You actually got me to read crisis on infinite earths. And I thought that was a really interesting read, really a, a hugely influential book all of the multiverse stuff that we're getting now really like that book is the kind of like, you know, the focal point of where that kind of took root. I read Swamp Thing for the first time a couple of years ago. That's a really haunting book. I mean, the, these are great comics, but they, they are your, I think Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was probably like two or three decades ahead of its time, you know, like to already be making fun of this stuff. Like, you guys are taking yourself so seriously, but it's a bunch of adult turtles running around. You know what I mean? Like that, that's the inherent joke is like, is this really the medium you're choosing to be so serious about? And I agree with that some of the times, like I, like I, I, I do. And I think in our modern reviews, we lament sometimes when the book takes itself so seriously. So as to like, uh, as as Alan Shurstel coined on our, our show, like to become grim, not grim dark, but grim dumb. Uh, we'll get into talking about the ripple effects of some of these comics um, as this episode goes on. When the when this approach is good, it's awesome, and these are some of my favorite books ever. You know, including like Frank Miller's Daredevil run. I mean, 
that is an unassailable run of comics. Um, so, and bold of Marvel to, to release that, uh, it's chock full of like very grim scenes that I think even today would be considered somewhat shocking. So, yeah, I mean, to, to your point, Dan, I mean, you know, like the whole impetus behind Daredevil Born Again is that Karen Page sells Matt Murdock's secret identity as Daredevil because she's she's basically prostituting herself. I mean, these are these are themes that, you know, were certainly unheard of in the Silver Age and even in the in the majority of the Bronze Age of comics in terms of the 70s and early 80s. So, I mean, yes, very, very dark. And I mean, I, I we're going to probably, you know, it should be a drinking game. How many times we use the word dark uh, in this episode? <laughs> I, um, but anyway, but let me let me also give a little bit of background about the, the death of Gene DeWolf storyline. So, you know, just to let people know what exactly are we talking about? I mean, again, for for reading purposes, we're talking about Spectacular Spider-Man issues 107 to 110. Uh, this was considered Peter David's big break in comics. It was basically his second byline for Marvel and uh, at the time, the the editor of the Spider-Man books, Jim Owsley slash Christopher Priest, uh, what he had said now, this was on his blog. And, you know, for the longest time, Christopher Priest's blog was kind of his only really uh, running dialogue about Spider-Man until Maisie Spider Talk had him on our show in our 200th episode. So go back and download that one, folks. But he said about he said about the, the Peter David run specifically, I didn't much care for the whimsical tone of spectacular Spider-Man and tried to nudge writer Al Milgram out of the seat in favor of the brilliant newcomer Peter David. I put Peter David and Rich Buckler on Spectacular, focusing on stories with a serious grown-up tone and more complex themes. Peter David in interviews basically has credited Owsley slash Priest for wanting to kill Gene DeWolf. He he actually wanted to use Gene DeWolf as part of his run as kind of a, you know, uh, an authority figure for Spider-Man to kind of play off of. Regardless, you know, David was into the idea that was pitched to him because he wanted to write a story where, quote, Spider-Man was confronted by a villain who committed crimes so heinous, so appalling that Spider-Man was pushed to the edge and over. And additionally, he thought it was, quote unquote, unrealistic that superheroes could turn an on off switch in their fights. Owsley and Peter David, they like basically banged out this entire plot in a marathon session at Peter's house. And then additionally, Peter David credits the artist, Rich Buckler, uh, who had passed away a few years ago, uh, for creating the visual motif that was, quote unquote, Spidey Me Till Street Blues. So you, you have any thoughts on that before we get into this, Dan? I mean, like it, 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 it definitely sets the table for what we're about to get for sure, right? Yeah, I mean, I, in terms of this being like Peter David's big break in comics, I do think a lot of the elements that like you can associate with like a Peter David comic come in here. I I don't think he's quite as like introspective and cerebral as like uh, James DeMatteis is, but like his stories do often deal with these kind of like fragmented superhero characters who are confronted by mixed, you know, pulls in their superherodom. I'm thinking of like his Hulk run and things like that. Um, and I think if you read this book, you know, in a vacuum, y- y- the writing stands out and and the art as well. Um, it's very different than what came before, but like there is a, like a reading this, it's like, oh, this is like a writer's book. Like, like there's a real voice here. Um, and so like in terms of Peter David, you know, I, I think it really stands out. And and that that Spidey meets Hill Street Blues, like 
there is a incredible groundedness to this. It really reminds me of like seventies crime pictures, even Peter in some of the images in this book, like doesn't really look like himself. He looks like this kind of like real guy you could bump into on the street. And that can be alarming as well as kind of exciting to, to see it in, in the pages of this book. Like there it, it's, it can be kind of inconsistent, but it is consistently different than what we've been getting up to this point. And now just in terms of some other unique themes and tropes that were that were more or less introduced here, not necessarily introduced in comics, but introduced in terms of Spider-Man comics, although some of these were kind of unique for comics too, I should say. Uh, the, f- the first is the idea of like killing off uh, a central character, in this case, uh, Gene DeWolf, but like not in battle, but basically like off panel or in this, she was in her sleep here. I mean, we see, we kind of see the after effects of, of the murder. We don't actually see the murder and it's not like she's going down in in the line of duty and gets killed like the way Captain Stacy was in Amazing Spider-Man 90. Um, Additionally, like the senator itself as a villain, while, you know, we've had not super powered villains before, like this was just, he was just a, a psycho with a shotgun. I mean, there was there was really no powers to speak of here. No no motivations besides I just want to kill people who I believe have sinned. Kind of a format thing. And I think this kind of lends itself to what you had just alluded to earlier, Dan, which is like the fact that this was kind of like a, a writer's book or at least like a creator's book. They did the bylines for Peter and Buckler and all that on the final page and like white text, uh, kind of like, you know, basically like the end credits of a movie. Uh, and I just like, like it's, it's very like, even frankly describing it right now, like I kind of get like little, little, little chills talking about it because like it really is like, oh, like off putting, but in a good way as a reader, when you hit that for the first time, cause you're just like, like it, 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 it it's very self-aware of the fact that this is different. This is, this is of a higher level of storytelling, if you will. It's also, it's just, I, 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 I like it, frankly. I, I, I like the fact that like you get to the end and you're like, who did this? It's like, Oh, you know, like, <laughs> kind of like when you're, when you're watching a movie and you get to the end, and you're like, who was that person? Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's like a celebration of the, of, of the medium itself where you can get to the end and then kind of celebrate who did the work. These are all very cool things. I mean, do any, any of these three bits here kind of have an impact on you in any kind of meaningful way? Or are you just kind of like, man, whatever, Mark? <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, I think these are, are, are really big, big deal. Um, I mean, we can talk about like uh, the death of Gene DeWolf uh, as a like fridging, you know, like, you know, and I, I think that would certainly be a knock I would have against this comic um, and adding to the historical element. Gene had not really been a character in the book in some time like she was a cop who was around and then kind of had disappeared into the background and this was like like when people like say like you know like the classic deaths in the pages of spider-man they might include gene DeWolf, but like mainly like she's someone who really only has popularity in in her death and she's not really even present in the story in any way you know like she was a kind of a bit player for a little while and then disappeared you know, mostly when when Peter was with Felicia and there is a sort of like uh, implication in the story that Jean had some kind of romantic feelings for 
Spider-Man um, that other writers have fleshed out. Um, the the villain with a shotgun, you know, I think is is interesting. We hadn't really, again, gone that much into the site like the like psychoanalyzing characters in the pages of Spider-Man. People were evil because they were evil. Yeah, Norman Osborn had some kind of psychosis going on, but it's a kind of like you know, like whatever the, you know, the hee haw, like he's just evil. Flip a switch, you know, and people would flesh that out later and give it some rich psychological context. But like, this was a guy who had a, you know, potion explode on him and it made him switch back and forth between good and evil, you know, like not in the way that the, the deep psychology of the sin eater was here. And so I think it does open the book up for, you know, some of the more complicated psychologies we've gotten in the years since for these characters. Like, I don't think, you know, the character of Eddie Brock Venom would probably exist without Sin Eater carving out a lane for that kind of thing. Like a character that is so psychologically tormented that he's willing to commit suicide. I do think that's important. And then just the elevation of, you know, uh, you know, Peter David and, and, and the art team in the back of the book, you know, it reminds me of something like this book gives me a real like French connection, dirty, hairy vibe, you know, to it. And like kind of, you know, splashing the director's name or whatever at the end, you know, we're in, you know, this is post seventies where the director ruled everything in movies, but like comics seem to be kind of coming around to that idea. Um, you can see here in the eighties. So I think these are all really important. So Mark, before we get into talking about the story itself, you know, in detail and our thoughts about it and all that stuff. I thought perhaps uh, if you don't mind, if you could summarize the story for people who maybe haven't read it or need a refresher, and then we can talk just kind of our overall opinions about the story before we break it all down. Absolutely, Dan. So, so basically uh, this, this storyline is set up by the fact that, you know, Jean DeWolf, who's, you know, the captain of the police force, uh, she, she is murdered in her sleep and you know it kind of like sends like shockwaves through new york city like who like who did this like you know who kills a cop it's 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 very kind of unnerving and 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 horrifying uh spider-man himself you know like he's like i gotta get to the bottom of this he's he's basically like out there acting like a shoe leather reporter trying to find out what happened here you know he's talking to cops he meets this one police officer who's been assigned to the case named Stan Carter, you know, so he's kind of like, you know, not, not buddy copying with Stan, but like, you know, just, just kind of, you know, uh, hanging out and picking his brain and, and, and figuring out what's going on here. The background of all this, um, we, 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 uh, Daredevil is, is also a factor here. You know, Matt Murdock is, is kind of like set up as this, um, almost like a, a, a juxtaposition to Peter in terms of, you know, Peter is, uh, you know, Spider-Man is like the vigilante crime fighter. And whereas Matt Murdock, because he, you know, he, he doubles as both daredevil and a lawyer uh, is kind of trying to follow the idea of law and justice and, and, you know, innocent until proven guilty and all that. Um, you know, the, the, the sin eater ends up striking again and kills a, uh, 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 a judge uh, that is a friend and, and Matt Murdock is actually witness to it. But like, because he won't give away his identity as daredevil, he basically lets this murder happen in front of him. It turns out that um, Stan Carter, the cop that's been assigned to the case actually is the sin eater. The sin eater is about to actually kill uh, Betty Brandt. Fate intervenes. 
uh, Spider-Man shows up at the scene and it basically starts beating the ever-loving crap out of out of the Sin Eater uh, to the point that, you know, you, you kind of get the sense that Spider-Man is about to kill the guy. Uh, and then Daredevil intervenes. And then Spider-Man and Daredevil have like a multi-page melee where, you know, it kind of like sets up this idea of like law and order and justice and vengeance and you know who's right and who's wrong and you know lots of lots of moral quandaries and then the 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 ultimate upshot of the whole storyline is that uh uh peter and matt learn each other's secret identities you know the and the sin eater is apprehended uh is that is that a decent synopsis of this i know i skipped over parts of it but that's kind of the the high level points of it (laughs) Uh, we we've had hot takes on the show before and I think we're about to get into our maybe one of our hotter takes uh, here on the show. What, what, let's talk about our overall thoughts about this story. As many have deemed it a classic Spider-Man story, what do, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, similar to those other storylines that I, I, I rattled off at the very beginning of this episode, Dan. I mean, like this Death of Gene DeWolf is consistently listed as like a top five or 10 Spider-Man story. If you go to like the major comic book sites and and whatnot, I am of the opinion. I, you know, like I Mark always with his, his nuanced opinions. Like it's not about, it's not about the marriage. It's about the stories, right? Well, in this case, I think this is a very good comic book story. I think this is a terrible Spider-Man story. Uh, that is very tone deaf to the character and is kind of an, a, a good demonstration of how not to write this character. It has had some positive influences. You referred to Venom and Eddie Brock earlier. Like, like these are undeniable. But like, I feel like bringing in this degree of grim darkness and uh, kind of cerebral Watchmen-esque storytelling into the world of Spider-Man is a huge mistake. Even if I think this is, in a vacuum, a really good comic book story. Uh, what about you, Dan? I feel very similarly. I, I I think a lot of my venom towards how this book writes Spider-Man bleeds into how good of a story I think it is. Because I think it is. It, it is a well-written story. But there's a huge caveat to that, which is it ha- does not understand its main character at all. Like this, there are are moments in this that I'm like, I don't even recognize Spider-Man. And maybe that's the point is that like he has been driven so far that like who he was before is no longer recognizable. But if that's the case, I don't think it earns that level of character change for Spider-Man. If it was like, say, a guy that shotgunned Mary Jane or something like that, maybe I would buy it. Even then, I don't think I would we're going to talk about kind of like subsequent influences of this. And I'm going to point out an, a story there that I think does a similar thing to this, but doesn't betray who Spider-Man is in his core essence. There's a moment I think that stood out to me very early on in this comic where I was like, yeah, no, this is not Spider-Man where Spider-Man's in a fight and he gets like hit really hard and he describes tasting the blood in his mouth and how it like fuels him to like want to fight harder. And I'm like, that's not Spider-Man. That's the Punisher. Like, and, and I think this story would actually work really well as like a Punisher daredevil story. Like 
if you have a character who already has a moral code of like, you know, like eye for an eye and like an I will I will take out the people that are sinning, you know, because Spider-Man has no hesitancy here. Like Daredevil is supposed to be the voice of reason, but it's kind of should be the opposite way around. I like the idea of vigilantism as fascism versus like Matt Murdock who is a like representative of the law and that everybody deserves a fair trial and et cetera, et cetera, except that's never who Spider-Man really has ever been. Like, uh, I mean, yes, he's a vigilante, but I've never seen him as like, uh, like, a, like a, a, the more fascistic version of that, which is why I think I like the sequel to the story more because in that story, Spider-Man is protecting the sin eater from the mob and he is like uh, embracing the idea of reform for this villain. And that's the humanistic approach that I expect from a character like Spider-Man. Uh, yeah, it's a good story, like in a vacuum. It, like, and like you said, uh, it is not a Spider-Man story. And that I think really keeps me from embracing it as a really great story because like, I can't even keep track of the main character and this thing can't really be read in a vacuum. Like it is a part of the Spider-Man lore and mythos and one that's not referenced a ton. And I think it's because it doesn't mesh with the character as we know him. Although I will say, I think it's had a profound impact on the way the character has been written and we'll get to that later on in the show. So those are our kind of hot takes on the death of Gene DeWolf. If you want to stop the podcast here because you think we're so wrong, fine. <laughs> but like, I, I would say, hear us out because we're gonna unpack like some some of our thoughts on the pluses and minuses of of this story. Let's get into the first topic here, which is the Sin Eater as a villain. I really dig the Sin Eater, and we talked about that on our our Bad Guys episode. How do how do you think the Sin Eater works within the story? Yeah, I, was, I, I just wanted to say, Dan, super quick that, you know, if if us being wrong was like reason for people to stop listening, I mean, you know, they would have stopped listening about 250 episodes ago or maybe more than that. I mean, you know, anyway, so the Sin Eater himself as a villain, I mean, like, like, let's look at this because like, you know, on one breath, like Spider-Man is not new to street level villains, but Obviously, there is just something inherently different about the Sin Eater in terms of his grittiness. And I'm going to use the term again. I'm, gonna, I'm holding my beer right now. His darkness. You look at previous street level characters. You know, I always think of like the Cry Master, the Enforcers, Green Goblin, Hobgoblin. I mean, like all of these characters, you know, like there, there, there is there's no fancy Dan or Ox here. They don't have fantastic <laughs> costumes and weapons. There's no pumpkin bombs and masks with big grinning goblin faces on it. You know, this guy is, you know, he he kind of, you know, you know, in a juxtaposition to Spider-Man himself, he could be anybody under a mask and it's a ski mask. It's just, it's just this a green ski mask uh, that he pulls over his head and his main weapon of choice is a shotgun. And, you know, in terms of like how Spider-Man goes about trying to apprehend this villain, it's not just like a situation where, you know, Doc Ock is tearing up downtown New York and Spider-Man swings into action and starts you know, has to figure out a way how to overcome Doc Ock's tentacles here. Instead, he's like, you know, he's kind of working as 
a detective here trying to track down the Sin Eater because the Sin Eater, despite the fact that he has this kind of, you know, very abrasive style to him, he still is operating in shadow. He's not, you know, just out in the middle of Times Square, just shooting at anybody. He's got specific targets. And, you know, you, you could tell like Spider-Man's trying to figure out like, what's his next target going to be? Who's he going after? You know, what, 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 what kind of sin is he looking to eradicate? You know, he's going after cops and lawyers and a priest. He kills a priest at one point. Like who kills a priest? We have long seen this kind of model in in spider-man comics where a villain does something or or even just a regular bad guy does some something spider-man swings in you know strings him up puts a note your friendly neighborhood spider-man swings off and that's just not what we have here you know you could even say like oh this is very similar to the burglar from amazing fantasy 15 because it's just a guy who's doing stuff but again like the burglar putting aside Marv Wolfman and Amazing Spider-Man number 200, you know, it's just kind of like a wrong, a wrong place, wrong time uh, situation with the burglar. Whereas this, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very thoughtful for lack of a better phrase approach to how he goes about committing murder. Uh, you know, he's got this righteousness about what he deems as being sinful people in this universe and, and like, you know, again, not for nothing, this is stuff that's being like ripped right from like the very real world news. I mean, not necessarily in 1985, although New York was like filled with some pretty like outrageous uh, crime stuff going on in the mid 80s. Uh, you know, I remember I never I never being at a panel at New York Comic Con where it was like J.M. Demetrius and uh, Tom DeFalco and a bunch of them. And they were like, you know, they they used to kind of fear for their lives walking to Marvel offices during this era uh, that they were going to get mugged or worse. Um, right. Because so, it was in Times Square, which was like at one point, not a great place to be. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't filled with like for different Elmo's, reasons. Yeah. Elmo's and singing cowboys at this point. So I mean, like, those this, things are very scary, too. <laughs> very fair. Very fair. But but the point is, like, this is this is a kind of like lawlessness and and crime and and you know you know <laughs> you know as, as much as people want to make uh new york city sound like a hellhole right now it, it's it was nowhere close to what it was in the 80s okay folks so yeah, I, this is this is from a lifelong new yorker okay i assure you <laughs> and i was alive for it. <laughs> it, it it just felt very real which in the context of this was taking place in the pages of a superhero comic book where the main character wore spandex and a mask, it just felt so unique and different and unlike anything we had seen before. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on Sin Eater as the villain? You know, like, I mean, do, do, do you feel he's well-developed? Do you feel he fits into this universe? Like, what's what's your take? Far be it for me to criticize a psychopath's motives, but I've always thought, like, the kind of like motive for how, who he deems as a sinner was always a little bit thin. Like it, I can never really track it. It just seemed kind of like I'm going after J. Jonah Jameson because he's a member of Spider-Man supporting cast and, and other times, you know, not. And, th- and that's fine. You know, like there's a lot of superhero stories where, Like, why is Jameson and Mary Jane always seemingly like, you know, in trouble with villains? You know, like that you have to operate within that small, you know, soap opera drama. But when you do ground it in something like what the Sin Eater is, 
you know, I do think it, there is a little bit more like to ask out of the justification for why these actions are happening. And that always felt a little bit thin to me, but on the other end, the characterization is really interesting. And I think it's a good foe for Spider-Man to go up against, even as I'm critical of the portrayal of Spider-Man in the story, I like him as a villain for Spider-Man, even if I don't think he gets a a genuine Spider-Man reaction out of him. Like I would love to read uh, like a redone introductory story between Spider-Man and the Sin Eater. And we kind of got that, you know, in like manslaughter or not manslaughter. Why am I thinking uh, the massacre massacre? Yeah. We kind of get that there. It's like, like a spin on, on the Sin Eater in, in a way that I find very satisfying. Like, I think that story is excellent. I've always been interested in the idea that Stan Carter is ultimately revealed to be a cop, right? Like the Sin Eater is Stan Carter, a cop. Because, like, you know, the story is ostensibly about Spider-Man giving revenge for the death of a cop. The idea that, like, you know, this is not a book that necessarily believes in ACAB, you know? Spider-Man relies on the police throughout his history, right? He webs guys up and leaves it for, you know, the judicial system to handle them. And this this is really the one time where he feels like he gets to be, you know, judge, jury, and executioner, um, which is, again, why it stands out because it's not really something that he had, you know, unless you watch like Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 1, it's not really something that he had been involved in up to this point, unless you count Red Skull's goon that he kills with a missile. Uh, but Nick Spencer <laughs> undid that. So, um, you know, that that didn't happen anymore. I, I, I don't know what my takeaway is about what this book has to say about the police, but I do think it's interesting that that choice was made because it does kind of undercut, like, can Spider-Man rely on the police entirely? Like, are they just as much operating in their own vigilante justice system as he is and who and who determines what's right and what's wrong again interesting ideas i don't know that like spider-man is the right platform for that but i i I have always thought that that reveal of his cop origin is done intentionally but i don't quite know why And, and that that's just an interesting wrinkle i think in the whole thing well let's let's talk a little bit about the the impetus behind the drama of this story, which is, of course, the death of Jean DeWolf. You know, you, you alluded to this earlier. I mean, like she was uh, introduced in an issue of Marvel Team Up several years prior. I mean, like, I, I got to be honest, Dan. I mean, like, I've read a lot of Spider-Man many times over over the years. And I can't, outside of her story where she's introduced in this one, can't really think of too many meaningful interactions between Spider-Man and Jean DeWolf. And even just like like what you alluded to with the police, I mean, yes, like Spider-Man like relied on the police, but like, you know, there was there were periods of Spider-Man where he was kind of on the run from police because, you know, the death of Norman Osborn and, you know, he was a want, considered a wanted man and Jonah had kind of turned the police against him. At the same time, like, I don't know, like if I'm if I'm being too glib about this, I apologize. I just feel like. Spider-Man's relationship with police was very perfunctory. It was just like you said, like he's, you know, like you guys take care of it. You know, I did this, you know, you do the rest. I mean, it's just not really analyzed. Like it's not been a core theme of the book. Like, you know, Spider-Man is a vigilante, yes, but then he relies on the system to, you know, handle justice. And in the Marvel Universe, 
they're not very good at that. <laughs> People go to jail and break out the next day or, or fly out because they let them build wings in the, in the jail and then expose them to the, the open skies, you know, but you know, it, it's weird that like suddenly this took a front seat and for whatever Peter David wanted to say about that. In terms of like, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, like Gene DeWolf as an important character in this universe. I mean, like, it's it's highly debatable. And I'm not saying that, like, to make the stakes of this book truly worth it, they had to, like, go after a Mary Jane or a Jonah or something like that. But the fact of the matter is, like, this, there was very little emotional stakes involved with this character. And instead, you know, like, given... given the journey it takes us on in terms of Peter and and his kind of journey to the abyss of his mind uh, over this character, like you're you're like wow, like I can't believe that, like you know, for me personally, I always go back to the fact that like Green Goblin kills Gwen Stacy in ASM one twenty one, and like you know, like you are you you go into one twenty two very much with the understanding that Spider Man if he captures. Norman is probably going to kill him. And even there, like he he's beaten on him. And then he goes, no, you you don't you don't deserve this from me. You know, like so the fact that like this, the death of this character rather than his own, the love of his life at the time drives him to such a dark place. It's very it's very tonally dissident to me. It doesn't make sense. I don't think. This character means enough. So instead, it's 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 very much a fridging because it's like it's like we're just taking this character and bringing her in for the stated case of her dying. And, you know, Peter David can say in, in interviews all, you know, until he's blue in the face that like, oh, no, I had plans for her. I, whatever. I mean, like if, if th- those would be the first plans anyone have ever had for Gene DeWolf. I do think he affords her some humanity in the story. Like there are moments where we get, we get insight into who she was beforehand, but you know, it, it, it's not enough one to justify where they take Spider-Man and two to escape the label of fridging. And, you know, I, and I, I think the art in this book is really great but i do want to point out like i think there's a lot of like really weird sexualized imagery in this comic too i mean even the death image of jean is like her laid back with her breasts like expand like you know like pointed skyward and it I, like maybe i'm weird but like when I, when i look at that image you know like uh, uh, there's many images in this book that really whether it's betty or whatever really like and they might just be Rich's style, you know, uh, in the book, but there is this kind of like kind of sexual energy and uh, like uh, dehumanization of women in this story that I, that I always like uh, coupled with the fridging. I can't really like I think absent the fridging, it wouldn't stand out to me quite so much. But like in conjunction with that, I, I do feel really icky about the way women are treated in this comic, especially that like we find out that. Jean was secretly in love with Spider-Man, you know, as if she could have any other motivation that might make her character more interesting, but she happens to be like a love potential love interest for our hero. And then to put Betty in, in the way of danger too. It just, 
there is a kind of violence towards women that like, yeah, maybe that's the way they want to make Stan Carter kind of like evil. But I always find it really icky just to read it on the page. I, I, it, it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, one of the first big images after Gene's death in 107 is like this, like kind of you know, woman, young woman in a midriff, and like kind of like in in the in the you know in the center of the of the page kind of thing. It's it's very reminiscent of like you know if if you are familiar with the crimes of like the son of Sam who was basically killing uh, young couples who were you know making love in cars out in the, <laughs> in the suburbs in the, in the late 1970s and stuff like that. Yeah. Like you said, it's, it, 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 I mean, now granted that kind of ties in with the character, this idea of like, you know, someone who, who is killing because he views this, this, these, these people as being sinful, but like, it's, it's kind of taking the crime of being, uh, an attractive woman who has sex as being the sin, which I know some, People will say that, but like it's 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 a lot, I guess, is the bottom line. It's 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 a lot to digest in the context of this comic, especially uh, given what these comics have been at the time. The other I thing I would afford if it afforded them humanity outside of that, it would escape that criticism. Like I think about something like the movie Zodiac, you know, and that's a very different medium. But like, you know, anytime they show the Zodiac killer like killing a woman as was his, you know, MO, you know, like it does go out of way to like present the women in an interesting way that suggests there's more to this character than, than what we get. And here we open the book and I mean, it's interesting. We get insights into Gene's mind, right? The book opens and I don't think we've talked about this yet. Like it opens with Gene's narration as if we're in her mind and we're learning more about her. So it does, try to humanize her immediately, but like, it's all like, you're not really even sure that you're reading Jean's perspective at first. And then the first thing we really see of her is just her body. It, it's disorienting. And I kind of respect its narrative ambitions more than I enjoy it. If I'll, I'll say that. The, the other thing I want to really hone in on here about what this book does is, is the way it moralizes about crime. Like this is like this is a very interesting topic to me because like I, I feel like we get this to other degrees in other stories in Spider-Man over the year, which is like specifically there's this scene in Spectacular 109 where, you know, Spider-Man is confronting Wilson Fisk about his potential connections to the Sin Eater. And, and Fisk is like, well, no, he's not my kind of guy. And the reason why he says that is not, not even necessarily because of the murders of the wolf and the judge, but the, the, the priests. And, and, and Fisk is this like this oratory about the fact that like killing, killing religious leaders destabilizes communities and that makes communities harder to control. So, you know, here too, ergo, I, I am not connected to the sin eater because I, I, I have a, a more sophisticated way of, of criming basically. And then it's like, I, I don't know. It just makes me incredulous. Like, it, like not to really make a jump here, but like it, it always brings me back to the, the September 11th issue of Spider-Man where, you know, Dr. Doom is crying at the site of the world trade center because it's like, well, you know, I've, I've tried to murder millions, but this is a bridge too far. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, it's just like, you know, like, 
Wilson Fisk, the kingpin, he he is he is the kingpin of crime in the Marvel universe. He is the center of 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 the of the mafia or the mob or whatever you want to call it. He is he is killed and murdered and robbed and stolen indiscriminately uh, since he was first introduced in these comics. So for like him to be like, well, you know, yeah, I've done all that, but this guy is worse. Like it's just like I don't know, man. It doesn't work for me. It's just like. Crime is crime in my, in my, or at least to this point, crime is crime. And if you're going to be introducing like these new layers of crime, I, I feel like more work has to be done with these characters. And that's not done here. Like it's, just, it's this lip service. It's, it's, it's telling, not showing in terms of the storytelling there. Am I, am I, am I ranting about something that is not that deep, Dan, or do you, do you share in this? I don't I don't know that it like really stood out to me that much, you know, like the, the Doctor Doom thing is an interesting comparison because it's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, it, it kind of foregoes the character. And that works for me because that people who read that book like as if it's like some canon you know, Marvel thing <laughs> right. are missing the allegorical text, you know, like like, you know, the writers of that in no way are, are trying to make a statement about Doctor Doom and his character. They're just trying to say like. You know, like uh, this is an act of evil, you know, beyond what we can imagine in the pages of a comic book, you know, and like Dr. Doom is the stand in for that. Whether it was a good decision to do that in the comic, I'll leave to other people to discuss. We we, we can talk about that in a future future season for sure. (laughs) You know, I think I think it's tough because like I think we have to acknowledge that like this is a different kingpin than the one that came before, you know, like this is the kingpin of the daredevil comic that's showing up here, not the Spider-Man comic. Like, yeah, the hoo-ha kingpin would never say a line like this. He was just evil, you know, but I, I do think that the, this is in line with the kind of more enriched kingpin. I think you even see it in the daredevil TV show where like he has motives. He is a member of this neighborhood in some way. Like there is a like a deep connection between him and Hell's Kitchen. Um, like I, I would be willing to buy that he would say something like this. Does it square up with his like long history in the comics? No, but that's also why I don't like love leaning on canon so hard. Like I, I, I think this moment could work. But you're right. It is. I weird. mean. Like, keep in mind, 10 issues earlier, he's, like, hiring the spot to, like, go after Spider-Man. Fair, fair I mean, enough. Like, I, fair that's enough. all I'm saying. Fair like, enough. yes. Yeah. Yes. In terms of Daredevil, this, this this aligns. But, like, even within this own book, fairly recent to this story, he's a different character than this. To- I think to- that's the bottom. Totally. Right. He's, like, going to, like, the Black Cat and giving her superpowers and... Uh, but, uh, you know, I guess that's like the slowly fraying edges of Marvel, you know, like it's Stan Lee's not writing everything anymore. No, know? I know. I know. Um, it's just yeah. it's just, you know, it, it, I just had to bring it up. And I and, and anytime I could talk about Dr. Doom and the 9-11 issue, I'm, I'm just going to do it. You know, we got the next Please few don't. years. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I don't <laughs> want to have to answer those emails. Oh, um, Dan, you're going to have to answer. I'm sorry. Anyway, um, <laughs> but okay. So we'll, 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 we'll move on from this because, you know, I, 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 I don't feel I have you quite as sold on this, but this is one I think I'm going to have you sold on, which is the whole Spider-Man and Daredevil thing here. I mean, like this is, this is kind of like, you know, the, when, when, when you say like, so what's the moral of the story? It's like, it's the Spider-Man and Daredevil dalliance at the end. And like, I, I got to be honest, like this is this is where I go from. B- 
being like, okay, this is an interesting Spider-Man story to this is a bad Spider-Man story because it's just like none of this aligns and adds up for me. I mean, you 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 said it beautifully earlier. It's not like Spider-Man is this fascist character. You know, this he's not Batman. Even Daredevil engages in, in, in these themes more. The idea that like when the law can't solve something, I will don the suit of Daredevil and take it into my own hands. Right. Like like that's built into the text in a way that it's not with Spider-Man. Yeah, it's just it's it's it, having Daredevil have like the higher moral ground in this story. And this isn't just me coming from the uh, the attitude of like Spider-Man is some kind of perfect being. He's not. I mean, we're, 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 we have said many times, quoting another J.M. Straczynski story, he is not pure. Using Daredevil as kind of like the beacon here is... And, and like, look, I know that it's meant to be Shades of Grey because, you know, earlier in the story, Murdoch has an opportunity to save his friend, the judge, and he he's more concerned with protecting his secret identity and therefore the judge gets blown away by the sin eater. But like, even still, like you are, we are led very much to believe that if not for daredevil and his kind of moral authority in this book, Spider-Man would have made a tragic mistake for which there would be no return for him uh, beyond, you know, maybe Nick Spencer retconning it. Um, so I, I, I mean, what, what's your take on the whole Daredevil Spider-Man showdown here? Well, it's funny because like, I actually think like this story is be, is playing out better in the pages of Daredevil. Uh, I would say right now, but we're about to relaunch the book, but like in the early part of Chip Zdarsky's run, you know, you have Daredevil really wrestling with his role as a costumed vigilante and whether or not like violence uh, because he accidentally kills someone, although we find out that it really wasn't his fault. Not entirely. He's wrestling with like, Hey, I'm this Catholic. I'm a lawyer. Like, why do I feel like it's okay to go out and do this stuff? And Spider-Man plays a heavy role in that comic of like showing up and being aggressive with Daredevil, like, like you killed a guy. Who are you? You know, like he, like we're supposed to be of a higher moral standard. And it's almost it's the exact flip of this story. And it works perfectly there. I don't know a single person who's not read any of the Spider-Man appearances in that book and doesn't say like that Spider-Man, you know, like it just, it stands out immediately, especially for the m- maturity that's present in the character that often doesn't feel present in Spider-Man's own book. Like people often point at the Chip Zdarsky run and go like, why can't get that guy write a Spider-Man book? Well, he did and it wasn't very good, but Hey, he uh, won an Eisner. There were, there were a couple issues that were excellent. It's, it is funny to like, see this, you know, exact scenario inverted in the pages of his daredevil book. And it just feel as natural as, rain whereas here it just does not fit at all yeah i i I just i don't know what's going on with owsley like at this point in his life that he feels like this is like an appropriate theme to insert into spider-man whether it be like killing ned leads off uh, you know off page i mean like uh, you have it here in the notes so i'm gonna get into it like like having spider-man kill charlie even accidentally in Spider-Man versus Wolverine. It's just like, like that, that, like, I don't know why that like is an obsession of his 
in that book. And I do think that the, there are repercussions, which we'll get to in the second half of the show that like the book would post this story and stories like it become obsessed with this dichotomy of like, what is Spider-Man's kill code? There weren't many stories, if any, before this, where that was even a factor. I just, I've never really liked that at a, as a Spider-Man theme maybe it works in maximum carnage but any anyway i feel like yeah we 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 we've opened up a pandora's box of which we still have not truly found an answer to it and like it's not necessarily an answer i'm interested in not because like i want spider-man to kill it's just like why are we why are we wasting precious time going through this with like like what you said for you know 30 years prior or or 25 years prior this was never an issue you know what i mean but yeah like obviously Owsley, you know, and I think it, it 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 aligned with what he, you know, part of what made him such a controversial figure and probably, frankly, you know, not for nothing. And, you know, we got into this during the Hobgoblin trilogy last season, but it's why he clashed so vociferously with the Falco and friends. It, 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 he was of a different era. I mean, he was a young editor at the time and. You know, the the big books at the time were books not like the DeFalco Friends run, you know? So, like, he wanted Spider-Man to be like, what was the It books on the market, probably? Um, I mean, this is, this is speculation, but it seems to track, for sure. You know, I'm glad you brought up, like, Daredevil in the Zdarsky run, not just because, like, I haven't read it as closely as you have, but, but it, it, it's just a great point to make. You know, I talked a little bit earlier about like, again, like my my gold standard for how Spider-Man reacts when he's pushed to the edge, which is Amazing Spider-Man number 122. Um, So I don't necessarily need to repeat that. But like, yeah, it just none of this, none of this tracks for me. Like, it just feels so foreign. And and it's it's very, uh, again, story over character. We needed to get from point A to point B. So how are we going to do that? Well, the only way we can do that, you know, the only way we can make this point is to have these two characters kind of fight, fight it out. And, you know, Spider-Man was going to be the one that was going to be in the on the edge here because this was more personal to him. As we said earlier, like how personal truly was it that Gene DeWolf got murdered? I mean, not that he wouldn't care, but we've had other characters get killed like Ashley Kafka and, and Spider-Man's just like, oh. That's a shame, you know, like I hate to be glib about it, but there is one thing that I think has been very long lasting from this story. And I think it's a good thing, but I'd be curious what you think. The fact that Murdoch and Peter know who each other are by the end of the storyline, like what, what what's your take on this? I mean, I think first off, it makes sense, you know, like that these two, like first that Matt would figure it out. You know, one, he's smart. Two, he's got super senses. He could, he could tell, you know, like, so that, that makes sense. You know, um, it just was going to take a writer to do it, you know, but I like this unique friendship. You know, it also makes sense. They're both like, you know, street level, pretty much, you know, Matt more than, than Peter, but they have the same territory as each other. And it makes sense that they would be friendly enough to like share their secrets with each other. And I think it's been a very fruitful friendship. Honestly, I wish we got more team up stories between the two of them uh, over the years. Um, And maybe that's what makes it special is that we are not uh, overdoing it. They are an interesting pair. 
Yeah. I mean, even if you make the case that like going in this dark direction is not appropriate for Spider-Man, I feel like at this juncture in time, you know, considering how these characters have kind of grown and evolved, this is the pairing that most makes, that most makes sense in the way that like Johnny Storm and Peter made sense in the Silver Age, you know, in terms of like the two teen heroes and kind of being both frenemies, but also good friends at the end of the day. Like, like I kind of expect Matt and Peter to have conflict, but that at the end of the day, they have a common goal and they see eye to eye. Like you said, they have the same territory, if you will. Like, not only do I just like this, in general but like i also feel like this is the best use of like the you know the frenemy trope in the spider-man universe at this point in time like i can't think like i know they've tried it with wolverine too daredevil makes far more sense to me than wolverine yeah i mean even just down i mean again to bring up the kill code like that like anytime it's like punisher or wolverine it's an odd fit for the character of spider-man to endorse such bloodshed even without getting into his complicated feelings about that, you know, it just seems like an odd pairing. You always get that obligatory line. That's like, and no killing this time. Oh man. I, you know, I really wish I could kill someone. And and it's like, uh, what kind of, what a weird conversation to have. Although I guess maybe it happens all the time on the police force. I don't know. Um, here I am going all a cab before we get to our discussions about like the long-term impacts of this story. Uh, why don't you tell people where they could have a discussion about their feelings about how wrong we are about the death of Gene DeWolf? You're 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 like really insisting on like kind of outing us as being bad and wrong here, Dan. But but I mean, hey. maybe we're not. Maybe maybe people agree with us. But like uh, the the I've seen this story like just so praised on the internet. I have to think that we are outliers you know as spider-man fans i mean well well we have never disagreed with anything on the internet when it comes to spider-man dan hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of spider-man fans on the slack the amazing spider slack community is absolutely free to join and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting conventions movies new comics old comics and more in fact i like to jump in like maybe once or twice a month which is becoming a running joke on the slack but hey i'm watching <laughs> y'all and i don't appreciate when you make jokes about the mets and don't think i'm gonna see it or when you make jokes about my purchases and you don't think I'm going to see it, I'm seeing it, all right? I'm just not in there every day like uh, my, my partner here at, who can now tell us what else is going on in the Slack besides trying to goad me into becoming a regular contributor. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the things that's been going on in the Slack is uh, there's been a lot of discussion over the past couple of weeks uh, uh, with San Diego Comic-Con happening. We found out about the return of Superior Spider-Man uh, with the return of Dan Slott, Ryan Stegman, Giuseppe Camacoli. Like, the whole team's getting back together again. Uh, we got this uh, Superior Spider-Man Returns one-shot, and then the Spider-Man volume that Dan Slott has been doing is ending, and it's being replaced with Superior Spider-Man. Mark, this is often the part of the show where I use the slack to get you to weigh in publicly on 
you know, contemporary Spider-Man things that we don't really have the time to cover on the main show anymore. How did you respond to this reaction? I know the Slack was like a hotbed of excitement and also confusion. What did you make of this announcement? Because, I mean, we're going to have to have that conversation. Like, are we covering this? Like, we are Superior Spider-Talk. Is that coming back? Are you trying to get me to commit to more content on on, the, on, the, on our episode here, Dan? Because that's a that's a pretty Weasley way to do it. I, I mean, look, I, like, let's see what happens. I mean, we we've talked about the Dan Slot run several times already in terms of running its 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 course of expectations and and desirability here, but. Let's see, I guess. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know I mean, what to say. In your blink, like, what's your blink on this? Like, are you excited about this? Or is it a very similar appeal, like, like feeling to, like, Dan Slott is still doing Spider-Man? Like, because uh, I, I, have, I have feelings about it, yeah. I think I'm more of the latter at this point, Dan. I think it's more like, why are we still telling these stories? Or why is he still telling these stories? I mean, you know. If I'm being completely honest, like, and, and like, look, I don't like, we just got through a four part arc, arc with uh, Doc Ock. Like, what are we doing as Superior Spider-Man at this point? Like, what do we, what do we got to say? I, 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 I happen to think the Christos Gage Superior Spider-Man uh, comic book series was, was fun, but it wasn't necessarily necessary. <laughs> so, so what is this going to be, you know? <laughs> so anyway. I'll be honest, I was really excited about Superior Spider-Man Returns as like a one-shot 10th anniversary thing of, of remembering something like that I loved, which was the Superior run for all of its warts and which we've covered extensively on the show. And so like revisiting that is really fun, especially if you've got the artist back in play. Like that's all really exciting. But like the ongoing having Mark Bagley doing it like look I love Mark Bagley but, um, but like I was excited when it was its own little thing and now it's like I don't know that I need to like what made that superior run so great was how unique it was and how singular it was I don't know why we're returning to this it's gonna need a really really good compelling reason for me to want to dip back into the world of superior in modern context. So we'll see, but the Slack is much more positive on this than I am. So if you want to discuss superior Spider-Man with us as Mark and I figure out, like, are we covering this thing? Because it was our bread and butter, Dan slot writing superior Spider-Man. Come on, check out the Slack. Uh, there's a link in the description of this episode that'll let you sign up for less than a minute. And my favorite thing about it, as everybody on the Slack likes to say, is now that the rest of social media has crumbled and we've got X and all of threads and all this stuff, the one really great centralized place to talk about Spider-Man, I still believe, is our Slack. So come on, hop on in there and join us. All right, Mark. So we've been kind of like hinting at this all episode, the idea of like talking about like not just this story in a vacuum, but like the long term impacts of this story in the world of Spider-Man. Now, that's not to say that you can blame this story for everything or it can get all of the plaudits for all the good things that came uh, out of this. It is just a story on its own and could not foresee the future. But I do think it made enough of a splash that like I think you can create 
very strong, like, you know, whatever, a river delta or whatever you want to say, keep my theme there, of, like, all the things that, like, resulted uh, in this and the way that this allowed the character to go that it maybe wouldn't have without this story's existence. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's fun, like... The the influence and and impact is is undeniable. Yet at the same time, I feel like we have received very few stories in terms of tone and structure that are that similar outside of and uh, you know this is going to be you know this will be next season's discussion, Dan. Uh, like Craven's Last Hunt, which you know frankly probably tops Gene DeWolf in terms of most Spider-Man story lists, but like. You know, it's worth noting with Craven's Last Hunt that that wasn't even written as a Spider-Man story initially. It was for Wonder Man and then Batman, and then it just worked its way to Spider-Man. I kind of, you know, even though that wasn't the case with this storyline, I do kind of think that's an important point to note, which is like, you know, these stories that like, you know, we have gotten maybe over the years where like, in reality, if you remove Spider-Man from it and just inserted any other hero and it still works... What does that actually mean for storytelling? You know what I mean? Like, like, like I think I think that's a, that's a problematic thing in its own right, um, which maybe we we can get into when we talk about uh, Craven's Last Hunt next season. But like, in terms of like bringing this kind of realism into the world, I mean, like, you know, it's just so funny because this is Marvel, the world outside your window, right? But like. It's still a fantasy, and this is not a fantasy. This is very much a nightmare, but a real nightmare. I don't love the ramifications of that on Spider-Man because I feel like that has kind of like trickled into it in other ways in terms of his marriage and some of the psychological stories we've gotten and 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 other deaths and whatnot. I mean, what 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 is your take about the realism? I mean, I think Spider-Man as a character, like what makes him so strong as a fictional character is that there is a lot of elasticity uh, to him. Like you can put him in a zombie story and he can function, you know, um, but the the key element there is that he's still the same character just reacting to that, you know, being in a different scenario. I think we've said it many times on the show. I don't think this is the same character. And I think a lot of the stories that were influenced by this would lose sight of like that kind of tonal consistency of like, and and character consistency of who Spider-Man is. You know, I think personally I would blame this book and this kind of trend of superhero storytelling for a lot of the problems that we would see in the nineties of Spider-Man and that we've been trying to solve ever since, which is to say like this kind of like, you know, say what you will about JMD great writer. And I love a lot of Spider-Man comics and I really don't like a lot of his Spider-Man comics because they were so focused on this idea of like psychological torture and the physical torture being Spider-Man and um, like kind of like the, the darker side of the character I just, I think you lose Peter's uh, like authentic voice and like, you know, is this me making a real case for like, I like one more day? No, but like to me, brand new day really solved that problem. It was like, oh, here's the tonal 
you know, like this is the, like not the psychologically tortured, a guy who's not uh, tortured by the weight of his canon and history and anymore. In, at least in the same way, I know it all still happened, but like, I think this story is really, you can chart like this story and this trend of comics as where Spider-Man storytelling would go astray to the point that we're still dealing with it today. You know, like even I think Nick Spencer's run was like largely focused on both undoing this kind of storytelling and being this kind of storytelling itself. And when it did best, I think it was not writing like this. And when it was at its worth, it was interested in the Alan Moores of it all, the high level thinking stuff that I just don't think works and spawns from this eighties movement. But would I still like Spider-Man comics if they were still all DeFalco friends comics? It would have to age up. And, and I think it's the struggle is like Superman stopped, not, not that it doesn't work, but like people find the character unrelatable from its origins. And maybe Spider-Man's time came due in the eighties where like he didn't work anymore inside the confines of like modern comic book storytelling. I'm going to do one of my patented um, making another kind of pop culture reference to kind of draw an analogy here. I'm, I'm, you're going to have to this, just bear with me, Dan. I know you, you, you're going to hate me for this, but, you know, I'm, I'm hanging on, Mark. All right. But but like to me, it's like it's in television terms. It's like The Wire versus Breaking Bad. I mean, both are shows that deal with a high level of like violence and darkness and villain villains and and whatnot but like whereas like the wire is very real and despairing in how it tells its story breaking bad it, there, there there is still some some fantastical elements to breaking bad um and like on a personal level i prefer breaking bad uh i know some people that prefer the wire um and i think like you can kind of point to that kind of analogy with this storyline here. It's like, you know, like, hey, you know, like maybe you want this, you want that kind of reality and grimness and despair and 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 in your storytelling. And like, that's your MO. Uh, for me personally, like, I mean, the brand new day um, comparison is perfect because like you said, I mean, there are, there are stories about cops being killed and, you know, s- stories about celebrity and, and, obsessions and, even a serial and killer. Yeah. It's done. So in a way where there's still fantasy and like, it, 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 I guess that's part of it for me. It's like, I read comic books. I read superhero comic books. Ergo, I read Spider-Man superhero comic books as a form of escape. It is, it is, it is an outlet for me. It is a way to escape the real world. Um, so even when we're making, even when stories are allegories or are making comparisons to real world events, like they're, you know, I would say in like 90 to 95% of my Spider-Man stories, there is just enough fantasy to it that it doesn't feel like I'm opening up a newspaper when I'm reading a Spider-Man comic. And this story is very much like, yeah, that you're opening up like, you know, the daily news or some kind of tabloid or, or, or just, you know, it's there, it's too real, you know, like it, it, it's not, 
it doesn't track. It doesn't feel like how this universe should feel. Like, you know, I'm not at no point in this story, you know, go back to like Amazing Spider-Man Annual One. Am I expecting like Thor and his hammer to fly by? You know, like, like, you know, for, for all we know, the Sin Eater blew Thor away with a shotgun. You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of how this book is set up. That's just too despairing of a world for me to want to invest my time in week after week or month after month or whatever the frequency of your comic book reading is. Yeah, like, I, I, I think part of, like, what I, doesn't work for me about Maximum Carnage in a similar fashion, it's kind of like none of, you know, we could talk about the fact that like, I don't feel like any of those characters, the stakes are ever truly high enough because it's like, who are these people? You know, it's so D list, you know, it's, it, they're, they're the Gene DeWolf of villains. But beyond that, it's just like, we're, we're, we're just kind of ruminating and, and pontificating about these, these themes over and over and over again and, 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 and trying to be thoughtful and, and subversive about it. But like, you're you're really not saying anything because it's it, at the end of the day I'm not escaping. It's you know I, I it's hard for me to think if you don't let me escape to think and and this book doesn't really let me escape to think. Um and and I'll say for what it's worth like Frank Miller did do Spider Man comics right he's those two annuals that we've talked about on the show before. Neither of those are as dark as as this you know I mean granted like he didn't write you know them but like. They, and they do deal like the Dr. Octopus one deals with real world things like nuclear annihilation. You know, it's done in a very like superhero, you know, hokum kind of kind of way. And I'd like to think Frank Miller knew that was not the right approach to this particular character. I, I've also been like referencing, uh, you know, a couple books throughout this conversation, but I didn't really get into them. Uh, I think another time that this book got so dark and violent is like after the death of Aunt May, you know, post-Civil War, right? And you get something like Back in Black, where Spider-Man dons a black costume and goes in to, like, beat up and potentially kill the Kingpin. But the reason that story works for me is, one, the stakes are incredibly high. Like, Aunt May is a foundational character to, you know, who Peter is. And the trick of the story is it makes you think that Peter has lost it and gotten unhinged and that he's going to kill the Kingpin and you're going to finally see Peter break down like potentially in the death of Gene DeWolf because you would buy that because Aunt May meant so much. But the reveal is ultimately that he's not there to do that. He's there to humiliate the Kingpin and send a warning by beating him up within an inch of his life and not kill him that like, that's not what I do. There is a difference between you and me, but like basically, uh, you know, you'd be surprised what you can live through. And, and so that story is really dark, but I don't think betrays who Peter Parker is and his moral code and how he operates as a vigilante. You know, he webs up Kingpin for the police there and, you know, and I think it was fitting for that era. And the other one that you and I have disagreed on in the past is uh, Spider-Man Rain, which is like, you know, obviously Frank Miller and Klaus Jansen are name checked in that comic, you know, and it is doing, you know, the Dark Knight Returns, but with Spider-Man in it. And you're like, well, Dan, you're a hypocrite. How could you say that this is wrong and that book is right? But I actually think that that book 
is, yes, it is grimdark. It's a one-off story, but I actually think it is a story about how that realm and that environment of story doesn't fit Spider-Man. And by the end of the story, he's redeemed and he's cracking jokes and, and, and be, and, and the whole point of the story is like, he doesn't surrender to that world and chooses to be like above it and go back to the kind of story that does fit him. And he becomes the author of his own narrative and is restored in the face of forces that represent grimdark. I mean, literally the bad guy of that story is venom. It's a pool of blackness, you know, at embodying Kingpin, you know, to me, that story is a direct refutation on the, like this hopelessness or the nihilism that you talked about earlier. Like that is a story that's full of hope, even because Peter's misunderstanding in that story is he thinks that he's failed Mary Jane, but in the end he re- learns that like, no Mary Jane like was buried in the costume. Like she believed in him to the very end, you know, and it's a, a direct, like, you know, the, the opposite of the dark Knight rises and, and that, that story for Spider-Man should be the opposite. So uh, um, I don't think I can hold this belief and be a hypocrite just to, maybe you can refute all that. uh, But like, I I do feel like you can put Spider-Man in this environment, but he like, it has to ultimately, whether it ends up there or whatever, you know, like there are a lot of what ifs that go and have Spider-Man's world become a hopeless mess. And, that's fine. Cause it's a, what if, you know, but if you're dealing with like a institutional Spider-Man comic, I don't think that like that tone fits him in the end. Any other thoughts on Gene DeWolf, dad? I <laughs> think we-, we have, uh, we have expressed our thoughts on this thoroughly and we'll leave it to our listeners to judge us and maybe call me a hypocrite. So Mark, uh, why don't you take us home? Of course, Dan. Well, It is that time, of course, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this podcast exists because of listener support on Patreon. For only $3.99 a month, you can help support our show's existence while getting early episodes, including new Amazing Spider-Man reviews, the same week they release in stores, exclusive artwork and a ton of other bonuses. So a big thank you to everybody who already supports us and the work that we do. We have no new uh, patrons this week. So, you know, maybe you can help us out, get that ball rolling again. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure us giving these controversial episodes is going to help us in that regard. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) to download our earliest episodes, including interviews with legendary creators like J.M. Demetrius, Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, Peter David, Mark Bagley, and many, many more. Subscribe to our amazing Spider Talk Back Issues podcast on Apple Podcasts. And and speaking of Peter David, like I know that we were like not a big fan of this, but Peter David is in the hospital, at least at the time of the recording of this, and he's seeking like GoFundMe support for his medical bills. And we do want to wish him the best with his health. You know, our opinion of comics is in no way a reflection of, you know, Peter David, the person. I think Mark and I both have a lot of respect for his work and for him as a creator. So I did want to say that. And, you know, best uh, best wishes to Peter David 
if he does ever hear this or anyone in his community does. Um, this podcast, as always, was edited by Rick Coast. The video version of the show is available on YouTube and was edited by Alex Galucki. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friend, Sal Buscema, and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge. And our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton. So, Mark, until I pull you back from fully ratioing one of our Twitter trolls after a mutual of ours got caught in the crossfire, what's our motto? That is an oddly specific intro, Dan. I should have said X trolls because t- Twitter doesn't exist anymore. Well, no, it's X, but also like I, I, I'm on Twitter like once a week now. But anyway, with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. Hey, everyone. Before we go, I wanted to give an opportunity to a listener, a supporter, an old friend, Brian Jacob from the formerly Ultimate Spin podcast, reached out to me after hearing the Patreon discussion of the death of Gene DeWolf and Mark, in my opinion, about grimdark Spider-Man stories. And Brian had a different experience with this story and a different opinion on it. And I thought, given that he's an old friend and that our opinion was likely to be a hot take, that we'd offer up his opinion as a counterbalance to the insanity that we likely spewed on this podcast and that will likely get us a lot of emails, many of which I'm sure are much more on the money than any of the commentary Mark and I offered today about the importance of this story and our like of this story. So put down the email and listen in. Brian Jacob here to give you his thoughts on the death of Gene DeWolf and perhaps operate as an audience surrogate to balance out our insanity. Take it away, Brian. Hey guys, Brian Jacob here, former reviewer for the Superior Spider Talk website, Miles and Gwen podcaster in another life, and a longtime listener and fan of your show. Uh, thanks for the invitation to share a slightly different take on this story. So I'm officially old, and I read this arc and other stuff with the name Jim Owsley on it in real time back in the 80s. I was 11 or 12 years old when this story came out, and I remember the thrill of discovering exciting and dangerous reading. And until the death of Gene DeWolf, Spider-Man comics for me generally meant action, humor, heart, a down-to-earth relatable character stopping the evil plans of a guy, usually in some sort of Halloween or animal-themed costume. It was like soda, right? Bubbly and refreshing and fun. But going from that to a character like the Sin Eater, that was the storytelling equivalent of a grown-up letting you get your first sip of coffee. It's dark and bitter, definitely beyond the comfort zone, but also intriguing. My curiosity was sparked, and this story made for unsettling reading in a really good way. It didn't warp my outlook or give me nightmares, nor did I ultimately prefer it. It just made a lasting impression on me as a memorable, darker detour. An important note I'd like to add to the conversation was Peter witnessing Mr. Popchick getting brutally mugged at the beginning of the story and then seeing the attackers getting released without bail, thanks to Matt Murdock, and going so far as to start whooping it up in court. Peter was furious at learning how the system works, and as a young reader, 
I was too. And this is what, for me, makes this a really strong Peter Parker and Spider-Man story because I felt his frustration in a deep, profound way. So like you guys and everyone listening, I always identified with Peter Parker and I aspired to be like him and do my best to be a good and kind person. And for someone like that to see horrific back-to-back injustices inflicted upon good people like Jean and Mr. Popchick, yeah, I would be sad and hurt and frustrated and angry too. We all have our limits and it was really scary, but also humanizing to see Peter hit his limits and want to punch back for a change. And that's really interesting storytelling for Peter Parker and Spider-Man. How much evil can a good person endure before their own boundaries are tested? And there's remarkable narrative symmetry here, right? We got Peter versus Matt on the court exonerating Mr. Popchick's attackers, and then Mr. Popchick later gunning down some kids hassling him on the subway. And you also get Spider-Man versus Daredevil on seeking revenge against Gene's killer, then saving him from a mob led by Gene's grieving stepdad. And there's a key line at the end, as Spider-Man says, as much as it hurts, I'm supposed to be one of the good guys. And that bit of dialogue, for me, is a startling world-outside-your-window take on the themes of power and responsibility. As readers, we're meant to identify with the hero, and I definitely felt like I was learning right along with Peter Parker. Maybe not award-winning writing, but it's certainly ambitious for a 65-cent comic book, and it made its point to a certain 12-year-old reader back in the day, 36 years later, and it is still a definitive Spider-Man moment and story for me. So great episode. It's always a pleasure to listen to your conversations. Thanks for doing what you do.